0: People weren't that interested anymore in saying, I have 200 channels because I'm only watching two of them. Why am I spending a hundred dollars on it, right? Mm. So the concept of it's $1 a channel and therefore, okay, not that much, but if you only watch two or three, then it gets that hundred dollar gets expensive, right? For yeah. two or three channels. So that's where Netflix and of course everyone came into play. The challenge with Asia was that most people, when it comes to online, they expect things to be for free
1: because it's on the internet. Hello, fellow risk takers and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. This episode is sponsored by A. ASTOT Academy's online course, how to start building your wealth investing in the stock market. I wrote this course for those who want to go from feeling frustrated, intimidated, or overwhelmed by the stock market to becoming confident and in control of their financial future. Go to MyWorstInvestmentEver.com deals to claim your discount now. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, and I'm here with featured guest Marcus Luer. Marcus, are you ready to rock? Yes. Good morning, Andrew, and uh, I'm ready to go. All right. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. Marcus Luer is Asia's number one sports marketing entrepreneur and the group CEO of Total Sports Asia, which is Asia's global sports marketing agency, which he founded 23 years ago in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Marcus is a sought after industry expert and speaker and has been featured on CNBC, BBC News. Bloomberg Asia regularly presents at major global sports conferences and has contributed to many international newspapers and industry magazine articles. He's recently launched his Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast Series, and just type that in and you'll be able to pull it up. I was just listening to it this morning, featuring top sports executives and entrepreneurs from around the world. Marcus, take a moment and fill any further tidbits about your life
0: yeah thank you well i'm excited to be here and and sharing a bit my stories as i said normally i do it the other way around i do the the hosting but uh, it's always fun to to share some of my stories too and maybe the short summary is uh, originally from germany grew up in cologne ended up studying in the united states and my mba there and was fortunate enough to be around in the us during the football world cup the 1994 fifa world cup which the us hosted And the city I was studying was in Fort Worth in in Dallas, Texas, which is nearby, which was one of the main venues. And so I volunteered, ended up with a job there. And, you know, as you do when you do an MBA, you do internships, et cetera. So during those times, I landed in the world of sports with American Airlines and a few other companies then. And so I got in this, and I think once you once you taste this sort of the amazing world of sports, the energy it brings, being a sportsman, I've always been a sports guy in my whole life, I realized this was my calling because I realized I would be doing this for free if it's possible without having to get paid to or. I was always amazed that someone would pay me even for what I was doing. So that's how that's how really I got into the industry. And then, interestingly you enough, know, my first job ended up here in Asia. Let's say first job after the Football World Cup where I did work at, I landed a job in Hong Kong. So uh, I got on a boat, so to speak, and I arrived in Hong Kong in 1994, later part of 94, and have never left. So I've been in Asia for 26 years. The majority of that has been based out of Malaysia, whereas my was where the head office of the company and and Let's say my first home, although now we're here, a fellow uh, Bangkokan here sitting with you, just around the corner from you. And yeah, so that's the short version of what I've done there. Interesting.
1: Uh, (laughs) Interesting. I came to Asia in 1992. So we both arrived on the shores of Asia in those early days. Yeah,
0: early days. And I never
1: left also. (laughs) Correct, correct. So yeah. One of the things I was thinking about, about sports that's interesting is that I'm a passionate guy about finance and I've studied everything I could about it. I've read everything I could about it. I taught everything I could about it. And I worked in the industry and and I just threw my life into it because I just found it so fascinating and so many things. Mm -hmm. And I have a friend of mine and she was a ballerina at a young age and has devoted a lot of her youth to that. And one time she said to me, man, you're a workaholic. And I said, you're a ballerina-holic." She's like, what? I'm like, you know, when you pursue your passion in sports and you push yourself hard and you do the training and you go through it, people really admire that, the discipline, the mm. struggle, the pain. Yeah, yeah. But when you're pursuing your passion in another field like the field of business, and you're truly doing it because you're passionate, you're not just working long hours because the boss told you you got to get this done, but I was pursuing my passion. They would call me a workaholic, and I just found that offensive. So I'm going to say to all the listeners out there who love what they're doing, let's call ourselves sportsmen and women.
0: Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Absolutely. I mean, I I have a huge passion for what I do, and and. I don't feel I'm working. Yes, it is work many times, of course. Nothing always works perfectly, right? So business is business. But in terms of being in a business where you have a passion for, and in your case, if it's finance, in my case it's sports, and also the world of gaming and esports, which we're really aggressively going after, those are things which, as I said, you know, it's fun. You're having fun while you, you know, obviously building a business and making money and, and everything in between.
1: Mm. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story. Yeah,
0: sure, sure. Yeah, and worst, let's call it in brackets, right? Um, I think it's a it, it's a painful investment, and or and in a painful learning on the back of it. That's probably how I would describe it. And that is a company called Sports Fix, which was our OTT platform we launched in the sort of later part of 2017. What uh, is OTT? O- yeah. OTT stands for over the top delivery or over the top. So it's a technical term in the internet space or in the digital space. And OTT really a few years ago, the best OTT example is Netflix, which probably most people would recognize, right? That means it's delivered to your device, whatever it is, right, over the internet. So that's what OTT means. Now, they, it now people use it in, in multiple levels, but at the time, really, it was always kind of referred to the television side of it rather than you have a set box at home or you get a whatever old television signal from a terrestrial network through your antenna. This is now delivered. Right? So when Netflix started around the world, everyone was looking at. How would that impact sports and where would be the next netflix of sports that's really and this is what most of us call you know we called ourselves that and others of course because it was easy for for someone to get their head around ah okay mm-hmm. so i watch movies so now i can watch sports but the uh, same thing it's it's streamed and i can be on any device and on any platform out there so this is sort of where where we started right to me being in a a broker trader in the world of sports and sports TV rights, this was very obvious was the next big thing. And for us, it was an opportunity to get away from just, again, being the trading side of it, where it's just a pure arbitrage game, right? I buy something for a dollar, I sell for a dollar twenty, or I represent a rights holder and would sell it to a broadcaster. So here was the opportunity to say, hey, you know what, we can be a broadcaster. We can be the guy who puts the content out there. But instead of having to find $100 million to do this, which is what you would need if you try to build a traditional broadcast platform, you can do it for single digits, right? That's the opportunity because the cost of building an OTT platform is a fraction of a, let's call it you know building a full on TV station. So that's how it all started right i felt this was the place i knew the industry i know where to buy content i knew where to uh i knew what the audience was looking for because we've been selling to of course the industry for 20 years at that time so it all seemed to be coming together I want just... to
1: invest with you right now exactly
0: exactly so i you know as i said so we've ticked every box you can somewhat think of it was the hot thing and everything in between so this is how it started and this is why it was Clearly, a good idea, and until today, I think it is a good idea. But it also, as usual, we've all learned a few things, which I'll come to maybe later. Why or what went wrong, and what we did wrong there, right? So we did launch the platform. We put a team together. We threw some of our own money at it, and we also started to do some fundraising of external parties. So you know, we brought some external investors into it because, as you said, it was a great story. It wasn't hmm. that complicated for someone to get the head around that. Okay. If you can be a Netflix of sports in Asia, even forget about the rest of the world, why wouldn't that work, right? So we got up up and running, built a team up very quickly, probably up to almost 20, 30 people at one point in time, based out of KL. And we launched the platform somewhat late, so early 2018, I think, in Malaysia first, and then sort of another, probably six, seven, eight months later in Indonesia. So, but when it's coming back to, you know, what, what then happened is that as much as the, the concept and the idea made all the sense in the world, we probably didn't know a few things yet at that time, and that's part of the learnings, I guess, coming out of it. Number one, we didn't really understand the consumption habit yet in Asia or in mm. our part of the world here of how people actually consume online content, and there is a huge difference. The consumer who buys a set box and watches whatever at home, whether you're in Thailand, you have True or in Malaysia you have you know Astro and whatever, you are committing whatever it is X dollars every month, right? And you and you kind of used to that idea, right? And that's our generation who we were brought up with pay TV being a cool thing meaning hey i got 200 channels now right before i just had a few whatever free to air channels and and you know half the time it never showed what i wanted even to though
1: look. we only watched one or two of those most of exactly, the time exactly
0: exactly that's the sort of that's where it's heading now but uh when you come from a free to air world which was a few channels and always all this sort of random stuff right and now you have a channel you can only watch movies or only sports or only discovery channel or only cnn or whatever that made a lot of sense at that time right and this is 20 years ago when that industry started and took off in many parts around the world thailand is probably not such a good example because true never really launched in a big way here or never get out of the out of the starting block in my view. Mm. So that was the industry you're coming from. Now, it was very clear the world was unbundling. People weren't that interested anymore in saying I have 200 channels because I'm only watching two of them. Why am I spending $100 on it, right? Mm. So the concept of it's $1 a channel and therefore, okay, not that much. But if you only watch two or three, then it gets that $100 gets expensive right? for yep. two or three channels. So that's where Netflix and of course, everyone else came into play. The challenge with Asia was that most people When it comes to online, they expect things to be for free because it's on the internet, right? So yes, if they have a box and have this and that, fine. There's still pirated boxes out there. And and that's part of the challenge actually True had here in, in Thailand that too many pirated boxes were here. But the internet is full of pirates. Just about every single stream you can find in some fashion, right? And so that was killer number one that we didn't realize there was a huge amount of piracy out there, which... We weren't able to stop, right? And if you, if you're a bit clever, you might be able to find it, even though, of course, you know we had it. For us, it was just a click away thing. That's one. Second was, again, yeah, that people, as I said, weren't quite as ready to uh, sign up and pay for things because there is just so much free content out there, right? YouTube is full of it, and and Twitch, and and God knows all these platforms there where where they, that generation is, right? So. So that is i think where we realized okay we had to shift the model away from subscription model which is what we initially Mm. thought was the trick to a more we would call ad driven model right so and that to some degree can work but it's a very different model because the numbers become very different so so we're constantly pivoting and changing the model. And if you look at other platforms similar here in Asia, like iFlix, which is probably the largest, was one of the largest at one point in time, not in sports, but it, you know they obviously were trying to be the Netflix of Asia. They did the same, right? They were constantly changing. You know, Patrick, a good friend of mine who, who launched it and there's one of the founders there, they raised 360 million US dollars and sort of burned most of it, right? We raised about 1% of that, but we burned that as well. <laughs> and so, but the story is very similar, right? So we were constantly re-changing and rejigging the business model while we are looking for, you know, The concept worked. It's not that we weren't attracting large audiences, but we weren't able to monetize it. That is probably one of the bigger learnings of it is that it took us too long to get to the point where investors and others were saying, I can see the model working. Mm. And so in the short sense, we ran out of money basically, right? In the process there that, but the learnings I would say of how did we run out of money were a couple of things. One is, I think we got distracted and the distraction unfortunately was, Again, if you listen to it, you go, okay, that made sense, but in high time maybe it didn't. If you recall, 2018 was the craze of blockchain and ICOs around the world, right? Yep. So everyone was all of a sudden in this sort of concept of wow, there's a lot of money out there. You can raise a lot of money through an ICO, you know, initial coin offering. And so we went, you know what? Let's have a look at this, right? Because all of our buddies were going, hey, I'm running and doing an ICO and I've raised 10 million a year and 20 million there, whatever. So it just seemed to be an obvious one. So we said, okay, let's, how do we integrate blockchain technology into an OTT platform? That is, there is some logic to it, and but it wasn't the most obvious right away either. So we spent a good six months drafting this incredible white paper, sunk a lot of resources and time and energy into it because we eventually we convinced, of course, ourselves that this was the place, right? And though we called ourselves the first OTT platform on blockchain. Until today, we probably have had one of the better white papers out there, which had a chance of, I think, to actually succeed. But what happened, it took too long. By the time we actually wrote it, we were in the middle of 2018 and the block chain bubble had burst, or the ICO bubble at least had burst, right? They, uh, you know, if you go the numbers, there were raised, billions of dollars were being raised and all of a sudden it literally just tanked. You know, yep. no one was raising anymore. And the only ones who were raising still were existing ICOs where people just topping up and trying to mm-hmm. sort of save, save themselves or hoping that, you know, by doubling up on one thing, it would work, right? So we never raised pretty much a dollar on the back of it, but in the process had taken off I think our eye is too much off a traditional fundraising as in bringing, you know, that's called a traditional equity investor other sort of investors in, one and two of the product a bit as well, because we're the whole tech team was now cracking how we would integrate blockchain into an OTT platform. The part which then came out of it, which was really interesting is that it will, again, it's not, we needed blockchain, but it added an interesting component. And that was actually the, the tokenization part of it, right? And tokenizing an asset is, it's a very clever thing to do. I and mean, so we learned a ton of things on the, in that area, which I think in, in a future business still, it will come back to it because tokenization, I think is a, is really an incredible area of A, generating new revenue streams or, or generate, you know, raising money, I guess, if you can tokenize something, yep. that's one. And, uh, you know, so I have tons of ideas coming out of it. And that's, I think, uh, you know, w- w- we all always do. I think when you learn, when you have a painful lesson, you learn something, of course. Right? And, well, and that's Maybe what we, we should are. list
1: out. How about if we go through, what did you learn from this experience? <laughs>
0: Yeah. So I think the couple of, uh, key learnings would be, first of all, as I, you know, I think alluded to already, you know, not taking your eye too far off the ball and sticking through maybe pivoting in is important, but I think you also got to watch, you don't distract yourself too much probably. And that's sort of would be one thing. Secondly, the sort of, I think we were a bit too aggressive in our growth strategy, instead of maybe making it work in a couple of territories first, or even one territory. So I've seen now over the years in my own business and in others as well, is that you do need a strong foundation, right? And I always look at, if you take successful platforms like the UFC or or the Premier League or whatever, pick a major event in the the world, they're always very strong in their home market, right? That's where they grow Mm -hmm. from. If your home market is weak, and, or you haven't really cracked the whole market, just trying to go global right away, it's very hard to do. And, and, and there's other investments I have in a similar fashion where I realized that was one of the big mistakes we made is that we always, I have this sort of global view or, or a very Asian regional view on a lot of things. And that makes sense when you do it well in one country and then you multiply it. So every time I did that, where I've you know was successful with one with a particular product or with a concept with an idea in in one country, and it worked, and then we multiply it. That makes sense mm. right? because then you have yep. the, the leverage there. But if you haven't cracked the first one yet, and then you're going, oh, but let's see whether this might work regionally better, I think that's where the challenge comes from, right? And so that is where where I would say uh, is the lesson here as well. We were too quick, too fast. We didn't have that opportunity to uh, to really learn it maybe in one or two countries first. We were already off to the next thing. you know. And again, and partially it was because we were watching others. That's what iFlix was doing, right? They were always doubling up, doubling up, running to the next place, always with the assumption, hey, then there is new viewers or there are more customers out there rather than uh, yeah, just focusing on the first market first. So those are, I think, a few wow. things too aggressive Mm. Losing a bit of focus, and then of course, yeah. If you don't have enough funding, and or you don't have enough, well, I guess if your runway isn't long enough, then you are going to run out of
1: space, run out yep. of time, and or or resource eventually, right? Yep. So let me summarize what I took away. I mean, I in fact, I wrote down a lot of things from your story, and I'm just going to run through them really quickly. And the first one is pivot. I think the best way to think about pivoting in a business is think about a compass. Remember in school, when we put down a compass, and then we twisted it around to make a circle, a compass pivots on a point. So in other words, keep one foot in what you're doing and pivot a little bit. But a lot of times what happens is that we start off a business and we chase the revenue. And next thing you know, we're in a completely different space. So be Mm. careful about pivoting. Pivoting is just usually mildly altering. Your idea, and it could just be that your idea is bad and therefore you shouldn't really pivot from it, you should go get another idea. And the second one is the idea of resource allocation and you know it's the biggest challenge of any entrepreneur. Is you have very limited resources, where are you going to put them and your ultimate success or failure is going to be dependent on you at the top and how you allocate those resources and that's such a challenge. The next one is the idea of test the market. It's just the best, best bit of information that comes out of this discussion as well as many others is test your product and just test and work with the market, work with the market, make a small group of people super satisfied, and then then start to expand. The next one is, it's actually similar to a failure that I had, which was that I was a, a stockbroker, an analyst at a stock brokerage house, and I did that for years as a head of research. And I had fans around the world of fund managers who read my research, talked to me, and I gave them advice, and my advice was good. So I thought, I'll set up my own company and I'll sell my research to them. And what I learned is that when there is a fire hose of free research coming from all of these different sources, which are brokers and investment banks, you can't get somebody to pay a reasonable amount that you can build a reasonable business out of that. Very hard. So competing against free is hard, mm-hmm. very hard. And I would say the other thing it reminds me of is my worst investment ever was the investment in a startup also. And what I realized was that, okay, there was a point in time where I realized, holy crap, we have to go big or go home. Yep. And that, what I meant by going big is we need to raise three to five million bucks minimum to go to the next stage. And are we ready to do that? And the answer at that point was no, we're not ready. And we shut it down. And then the last thing you talked about is runway. And I always say that there's two runways. Runway number one is a financial runway that you have the funds to execute your idea. And runway number two is a confidence runway where the people who bet on you initially, eventually if you don't turn it into something valuable they will lose confidence. And it doesn't matter if you have money if you don't have confidence. But if you have confidence and you don't have money, you can probably work something out. So anyways, a lot that I took away from your, is there anything you'd add for that?
0: No, I think you, you covered well. It's like I said, it, it's really always a combo of things. And when you're right in the middle of it, of course, that's the harder part, right? Now, this is a, you know, a couple of years back when all this unfolded. And, and so the company, as I said, we had to shut it down in sort of beginning of 2019. So it's now almost close to two years back mm. since it all happened. But when I was really in the middle of it, it was painful. And you're not focusing on the lessons. You're just dealing with the damage and Putting out the fires. And so, only I think, yes, sort of a year or two later, I think is when you then really have the opportunity.
1: Hindsight uh, 2020. Yeah, totally,
0: totally, totally.
1: So, that leads into the next question, which is based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn. What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Let's go back in time. What would have helped you?
0: Well, like I said, you know, I've started many companies in some sense or a business project within our own company, right? So it's not always a, that it was a yep. standalone business as this one was. Most of the time it would be in a project within the company itself, right? And so within it, the company was always existing. We maybe were just investing some money in a particular project. If that didn't work, we shut the project down and we moved on, right? And the business continued. Maybe that just knocked the profitability for the year a bit, but uh, it wasn't killing the company, right? So I guess I'd never had that type of experience of what it means to really go through a business, which then looks like it's gonna fail and we can't keep bailing it out, right? Because we were just throwing more money at it and we draining the, the mothership in a sense, right? So the, the mother started to catch fire from the <laughs> from the house next door. And so that was an interesting one, which again, you know, here's an analogy which I used and I had to really switch it in my head. And that is, I called, SportsX was my baby, okay? Ooh, that's a bad analogy if you're trying to separate yourself from something, right? (laughs) Um, You know, as an entrepreneur, if you call your business your baby, I think you're in trouble already, right? Because it means you're going to do whatever it takes to save it, right? As you would with a real child. Now, that's, again, it's a good thing in many ways, right? And we can all see the positive of that, but you can also see the negative, right? Because you're going to just try to hang on to it, right? And you're drowning theoretically with it. And that's sort of then what i you know i had to kind of switch the analogy of saying okay we need to rescue our baby to okay well we have a we had a whatever there's a next door you know we had we created another house but that house is on fire if we don't put that fire out we're going to catch the main house is going to catch fire which was you know tsa as, as a group which to some degree actually what happened right so we We were draining the resources there and every all the money we were making here, we were throwing it at the next thing, right? So, but I said, there was an interesting mind. I had to really stop calling things and putting these more emotions to it than you already have as any business entrepreneur has with their idea or with a concept to say, look, you know what? It isn't working and we will have to go that more brutal route of shutting things down. Mm.
1: Hey, baby, it's not your baby. Yeah, correct. So, last question: What's your number one goal for the next twelve months? Number
0: one goal ah, for the next twelve months. Well, look, we, you know, we've all coming out of an incredible, crazy, you know, two thousand twenty. I don't see two thousand twenty-one being that different in many ways. I do believe we're going to see continuous restrictions on travel, and many other things. So, again, without overusing the word pivoting here, but as a company, we've very heavily focused on the world of sport, esports, or gaming which is growing dramatically and all the sort of trajectory you already had in uh, before COVID is just accelerating because you have more people at home. So there yep. is a whole lot more folks playing games now in between, or, or even there's more focus on the industry, right? We're now bringing those 25 years of experience in sports into the world of esports and gaming. And there's some cra- amazing new things we're doing in the Middle East and here in Asia. So that's probably my big focus, I think. That's the, the space I love. Again, very natural progression of what we're doing already in the, you know, we've always been, our job has always been to generate revenue streams for sports. That's what Mm. we've done, you know, half a billion dollars worth of those. So my goal is, and and I've declared that publicly to try to find the next billion in the next 10 years. So we took, it took us 20 years to find a half a billion revenue for sports. So the goal is to find a billion dollars in the next 10. So two X on both ends.
1: Beautiful. (laughs) All right. Listeners, there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember to go to my slash deals to claim your discount on my How to Start Building Your Wealth, Investing in the Stock Market course. As we conclude, Marcus, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning right. your worst thank you. investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: No, look, no, th- thanks for being on here. And it's always good to reflect. Um, you know, it, it forces you to think about what happened really in a different way when I mean, you have to explain it to others. Um, and I've done it a few times now to myself. But yeah, it was good and appreciated.
1: And hopefully there's some learning for everyone. I think we all learn. And just looking at the notes that I've taken down, you definitely have helped me. So I appreciate that. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott saying, I'll see you on The Upside.